Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Director of Outreach. With me is my usual co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Deputy Editor of the Proceedings Magazine. So, Bill, a super busy few weeks here in uh, and around the Naval Service. Uh, I guess the top of the current events um, roster is uh, Admiral Branch was found not guilty of any uh, charges associated with the Fat Leonard scandal. So uh, what do we know about that? Well, Ward, you know, Naval Institute, USNI News uh, broke this story a couple of days ago. Uh, I think the the uh, actual description is that he's not not guilty. That the Navy essentially dropped all charges because they found that there was no real reason to uh, to continue in the you know the cloud that had been over his head for four years now. Uh, there was not uh, sufficient reason to try to. Uh, Bring Admiral Branch to trial. He's been uh, let off, uh, and and he will try to now recover uh, his good name after living under this uh, cloud of uncertainty and an indictment. You know, for what it's been four years. Yeah, I mean that's the point here, right? Is um, this seems like it's sort of a guilty until proven innocent dynamic here, and. I don't know if this is the way it has to be because of the trust and confidence of the American public with warfighters. But as you just said, he's been living under a cloud of suspicion for four years. His reputation arguably is trashed, um, or at least to the degree that uh, uh, there is some cloud of suspicion just associated with uh, the accusations. So he was removed from uh, his billet as the head of naval intelligence. Um, he was in limbo for literally, as you said, almost four years. Um, and now, even, even as the director of naval intelligence and N2N6, uh, his ability to access classified information for the years that he had that job uh, was taken away. So it, it, it neutered the position, not only him, but the position as well. Uh, and his uh, acting deputy or his uh, deputy had to had to carry the load while... Uh, he was, uh, you know, in limbo, uh, waiting for, uh, f- you know, formal charges against him that never came. Um, and the I know that the organization suffered because, you know, when you have a director who can't carry out all of his duties and can't be read into all the information that that job requires, it really puts an impact uh, on the organization and on the Navy. So there's sort of a weird confluence of of events going on. So you have, on the one hand, the Fat Leonard fallout, which is affecting basically the flag billets fleet-wide. You know, the superintendent of the Naval Academy is going to be here for an extra year, which is good news for the Naval Academy. Um, Because of the Fat Leonard uh, scandal, there's nobody to relieve him. Um, And uh, we just heard that uh, Admiral Swift um, is going to retire instead of going to PACOM, which is the normal uh, chain of events, if you will. Um, and the rumor is that uh, uh, Fleet Forces Command, uh, Phil Davidson, will take that, uh, that billet. Um, so um, the, um, this, this whole thing is sort of, you combine Fat Leonard with these things, and it's creating quite a, quite a mess for, uh, for uh um, you know, sort of the, the, the Navy. But um, the other thing that is complicating 
matters is uh, what's happened in the wake of Fitzgerald and McCain. So the the Naval Institute suite of products has, has been pretty much on the case, um, uh, particularly proceedings today, um, with some great sort of context and uh, procedurals and and prescriptive uh, you know rec- recommendations. Uh, tell tell the audience about a few of those things in case they missed them. So uh, some of our listeners may not have heard of proceedings today or may not have uh, seen it yet. Uh, since the last time that we tried, you know, we did our, our initial podcast a few months ago when Dave Adams was still here. Uh, we were at that time just getting ready to launch proceedings today. Uh, so we still have the monthly magazine that's been here since 1874. Proceedings is published hard copy once a month at the start of the month. We also publish it online. Uh, and in May, we launched proceedings today, which is uh fully curated, edited, proceedings, uh, quality content that we publish normally Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Uh, we are, it's shorter, it's analysis, it's commentary. It tends to be timely uh, in reaction to or, or uh, uh, you know, based off of what's happening in the news. So USNI News had broke the stories of the the uh, Fitzgerald collision, the McCain collision, and then we very quickly had a uh, a number of proceedings authors writing in about what that meant for the profession. How did that kind of thing happen? What decisions did the Navy make over the last 10 years that led to the readiness and the training deficiencies in the surface fleet that could have contributed to those collisions? Uh, I would just bring up... Uh, in proceedings today for the month of September, the most read piece that we had, and again, this is all online, but the piece that was read most was a piece by an active duty uh, surface warfare lieutenant commander. His name is Matthew Brown. He's the CEO of the USS Scout, which is a minesweeper. Uh, And he was reacting to a lot of the talking heads, uh, particularly on Fox News or in, uh, there was a, a, a very, kind of egregious piece in uh, uh, in the Navy Times that, you know, sort of cast a lot of questions about the ability of today's current group of leaders, you know, the current COs, the current XOs, the current uh, department heads out there in the surface fleet. What are they, a bunch of, you know, imbeciles? And so uh, Matt Brown was uh, writing uh, for the morale of his crew, for the morale of the current active surface fleet, and saying, hey, look, the surface force is not broken. And he gave some, uh, you know, reasons. Yes, uh, we've, we've had two ter- terrible accidents. Yes, there needs to be investigations. Yes, we need to learn from that. Yes, there are some problems, uh, but we're not broken. Uh, the world should not, uh, you know, take from those two collisions that the U.S. Navy uh, is now a third-rate Navy. Um, and he was also writing, I, I got to talk to him uh, about the piece, he was writing also to concern parents. He had parents of his crew members writing to him or emailing him, calling him, saying, geez, do I need to worry about my son or daughter who's you know, on your ship or on other ships in the Navy? And he was trying to reassure them that you know, heck no, we're still the, you know, the greatest Navy, you know, uh, in the world. He took a lot of heat from some of the older retired, you know, graybeards. Yeah. Um, but he also was very widely read and a lot of people, you know, posted his piece and uh, shared it on Facebook and retweeted it. And so it was nice to see that, um, you know, resonate uh, with our audience. So e- either in a positive way or a negative way, but it got a lot of attention. Well, let, let's talk about the heat. 
for a second because I think that's an important uh, part. Um, the um, the problem with the graybeards, as you've labeled them, which is you know let's let's call them the graybeards, yeah, is and, and we resemble that remark. Yeah, so, we resemble yeah. <laughs> of which we are too, um, or at least gray hairs. Um, if I grew a beard, it would it would be gray as well, or even white, um, in in certain parts. But uh, the the critics of uh, Commander Brown's piece um, were, came at him pretty hard about his tone, like he was too rah rah and he was naive and so forth and so on. The, the 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 thing that strikes me when when that happens, because the same thing sort of happened when I was teaching here back in the late nineties. There was a whole uh, uh, bunch of grads and uh, let's call them graybeards that were criticizing some of the the ethics initiatives and other things that were going on with the active duty force around the training side of the house that it it wasn't just criticism. It was like categorical condemnation. Like my life when I was in uniform was better than yours ever has the potential to be. So that's no longer constructive, right? And so uh, I actually put some comments on Twitter when I saw some of the critique of, of the Proceedings Today article um, that's like, hey, look, at some point after you give your sage point of view and context, it's time to just support those who have their hand on the tiller, right? And and so, you know, I, I would entreat the core audience of, Naval Institute members and those who read Proceedings and Proceedings Today to keep that perspective, right? It's, it's you know, we are the forum. We want open and honest debate. But at some point, you just start to savage the morale of those who are charged with doing the job right now. Right. And uh, Lieutenant Commander Brown called out this headline from Navy Times, which was, quote, maybe today's Navy is just not very good at driving ships. and And he found that you know, to be kind of a, a, a personal attack on him well, and, his, it is. and his contemporaries. Sure, it is. But, but, but he drew a, a distinction with some of our other proceedings authors. Uh, a great example, probably best example, is Captain Kevin Iyer, Navy retired, commanded three cruisers, uh, who did not, has, has not taken that tack, right, has not attacked as incompetent today's ship drivers. Instead, what Kevin Iyer has done is help explain how did this happen, how did we get here? And he also took responsibility as a, you know, relatively recently retired captain who had major command who said, look, you know, I and all my colleagues are also responsible for this. We let decisions about readiness, about training be made 10 years ago, 12, 10 years ago that led to where we are right now, that led to, you know, SWAS was uh, disbanded. Uh you know, big decisions about maintenance and training and deficiencies that he said you could start to see coming 10 plus years ago. And now we're, you know, we're reaping that that uh, that harvest. Right. You know, the seeds that we sowed 10 or 12 years ago. So Kevin Iyer, uh in August, his piece that was called uh, Root Cause Collisions, Root Cause uh, Part One was the most read uh, proceedings piece in August. Uh, I, I, just a, a terrific piece uh, about, you know, how do we get here and what what can we do to fix it in the surface Navy? Um, but not blaming, you know, the, the crews of the Fitzgerald or the McCain, not not uh, throwing them under the bus, but explaining, hey, this is how we got here. And these are some of the things that we're going to need to do to fix it. 
So as we let off this this part of the show, we're, we're talking about um, the suite of Naval Institute products. Um, you know, so you have proceedings, you have proceedings today in USNI News. So in recent weeks, we're, we're pretty happy with how those have uh, sort of uh, been on the case in their own various battle rhythms to to, you know, both provide breaking news and then context, maybe what you would call the second day story, and then in the pages of proceedings with the monthly deeper context. And later you will see Naval Institute books around this topic. So, you know, your Naval Institute uh, on the on the case in a, in a very 21st century way. And so that's that's very exciting to see. Another update, because back in July, you and I sat down with the Airbus, Admiral Shoemaker in the Pentagon. And one of the big topics that we were talking about was the T-45 and the oxygen, the OBOGS situation. So I was at the Navy football game last weekend at our tailgater that we uh, sponsor first company and uh, my classmate who happens to be uh, Air Lant, uh, Admiral Bruce Lindsay, uh, we brought the, the subject of OBOX and he mentioned that basically um, they've solved the issue um, and that they found root cause. And so as Admiral Shoemaker intimated they kept pointing towards the charcoal content in the filters and and that and so like any system legacy hornet breathing apparatus and t45 breathing apparatus is getting old there are learnings that the engineers didn't know at the beginning of the introduction of this system the other thing he pointed to is the t45 uh, is in uh, environments that have high humidity and high high ambient temperature, and so that also exacerbates uh, the the shelf life or the, the fail time of this charcoal system. So, just as an update to things we covered before, um, they're flying and getting X's and sorties, and so in essence, um, that that problem is behind uh, the chief of naval Ed, uh, air training and, and, uh, the other platforms that use OBOG. So that's good news for those of you who are, uh, waiting to start flight school and, uh, you know, suffering a long indefinite pool and so forth. So, uh, that's good, good breaking news there. Yeah. And as, uh, Admiral Shoemaker told us that we, and we published the interview in the September issue of proceedings. And then, uh, I had some conversations out at Tailhook a few weeks ago with some, uh, JO naval aviators about that topic and about, you know, the holdup that they've had in their training. Uh, one of the key pieces to fixing that problem was uh, a water removal uh, device or system. So there was humidity in the system. Uh, other aircraft that, like the F-22 uh, that have uh, OBOGs have a, a system built in that removes moisture before the air goes through the, uh, the system. And uh, the T-45 did not have that. They now have it. They had to do some things with bleed air uh, to to provide the power for that moisture reduction, um, but but that was part of the fix and and seems to be working. And the throughput of you know young naval aviators uh, is now uh, back up to to where it should be. Uh, but it, there's going to be a there's going to be a um, an impact, you know, because they had essentially a yeah about five a six, five six or six months, months where yeah. where no. Uh, new pilots were being made uh, for those months, so right. like 150 pilots short for uh, F for the the uh, 2017 year. Right. So that affects, as we reported before, that affects uh, roll times for those who are in fleet squadrons, in terms of you thought you were going to shore duty, maybe not. 
and it also affects uh, start dates for those who selected naval aviation um, at, you know, at the end of last academic year when they got commissioned. So, but, you know, problem uh, solved. And so uh, Admiral Lindsay uh, gave max kudos to Navair, um, and we brought that up in, uh, in, in Admiral uh, Shoemaker was uh, was pretty pointed uh, in in his uh, uh, you know how they'd work together and who led who in terms of the discovery. You know, I used the word mutiny and I was called out uh, in in uh, in the comments section of of one of our sites for using that word. I didn't mean it in a pejorative way, um, but I meant it in a leadership like gumption way. I mean, good on the instructors for saying tilt. And obviously that was what it took to get the attention of both the chain of command in the training command, but also nav air. Um, but Admiral Lindsay said that, you know, nav air seriously, uh, what was on the case and doing their job and this is how it's supposed to work. So, you know, six months of a delay is never a good thing when you're trying to make pilots that, that are out there in a very high op tempo environment, but problem solved. Yeah. It sounded like from Admiral Shoemaker, like nav air, push the envelope of how quickly they could do some of the test and evaluation and some of the flight test after they modified that system to get it back into the, the, the training command and to, to, uh, uh, get that modification made to all the T-45s across the fleet as, po as fast as possible. Yeah. So once they actually have the problem identified, they're, they're on it. I, I think if Emma Schumacher had any concerns, it was, they, they didn't seem to make it, uh, a a a pry one uh, situation when they first socialized the issue, and that was the what the instructor's problem was. Um, so you know, all's well that ends well. Um, as with everything that we deal with, um, lessons learned will be incorporated and uh, and taken forward. But uh, again, for those who are affected by the training. Uh, schedules, uh, OBOGS is, uh, is, is working. And those who attended Taylor probably already knew that. Um, so let's uh, talk about the next issue of proceedings. Um, and we have some early looks uh, on some of the stuff in there. What, what, what's the, uh, the October issue looking like? So, Ward, the October issue is uh, focused on uh, the you know submarines. So uh, there's content from all different parts of the Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard. Uh, but the, the special... Uh, focus for the uh, the October issue is uh, is submarines, and uh, we just have some amazing articles in the October issue, uh, and I'd like to preview a few of them. Uh, starting off, um, the uh, unraveling of the Thresher story. So, a, a retired Navy captain who worked at Portsmouth Naval Shipyard in 1963 when the Thresher, the USS Thresher, uh, at that time. Um, the equivalent of uh, a Virginia class or a Seawolf, the most advanced uh, attack submarine in the Navy at the time, first of its class, uh, went down off the coast of Massachusetts, uh, all hands, 129 people uh, lost on board that, uh, that tragedy. Uh, and, and this uh, captain, Captain uh, Joseph Yurso, who worked at the shipyards at the time as a lieutenant, um, kind of walks through the decisions that were made and then what happened, uh, big changes that the Navy made uh, after the, the Thresher tragedy. Uh, so some of the things that caused it, 
at the time, um, there was a big push to build SSBN, so ballistic missile submarines. Uh, we're in the, the height of the Cold War. The, the Soviet Union is starting to think about ballistic missile submarines. The whole concept of the triad, nuclear war, both sides building, you know, megaton uh, missiles. Uh, and so the Navy's push was to get SSBNs built and at sea uh, as part of our, uh, you know, strategic deterrence uh, piece as quickly as possible. So Captain Yurso points out that at the shipyards at Portsmouth, uh, that yard was building both SSNs and SSBNs. Uh, but the focus um, and a lot of pressure from on high to get the SSBNs built and at sea as quickly as possible. So uh, a lot of the um, you know, highly skilled technicians, the welders, those kinds of things um, were being shared across across programs. And and he says, you know, that led to probably some uh, shortcuts. Uh, they got the ship to sea. They did some depth testing on it uh, and, and got that, that boat uh, descended deeper than any other boat before that, uh, came back from its uh, depth trials. Uh, and then they were supposed to do some testing, a, a post-builder's trial uh, availability um, that, that got strung out and lengthened because of the focus on the SSBNs. Uh, some of the, um, the, the welds that should have been tested after depth testing uh, weren't tested. Uh, they were under pressure to get her back out to sea and get her you know, into the fleet as quickly as possible. And in a, on that second uh, uh, at-sea period, uh, that's when the, the, the boat had, uh, you know, some critical problems and, and never came back. Um, out of that, the good that came out of that, uh, the Navy's subsafe program was started after Thresher. Uh, and the, the submarine community uh, took a lot of things um, much more seriously uh, after the Thresher loss uh, that led to, uh, you know, the incredible... Um, uh, record of, of success in a submarine fleet. Um, are there lessons for the rest of the Navy right now, particularly the surface Navy? Uh, probably, and there's some parallels drawn in the article to you know some of the things that might have happened in the last 10 years with maintenance, ship maintenance, uh, you know, uh, PSAs, that kind of thing for, for surface combatants that maybe uh, the, the, the McCain and the Fitzgerald incidents you know, are, are shining a, a light on right now. So it's a great piece. Uh, it, it's definitely sobering. Uh, it's it's sad, but it also you know 50 years on, uh, you look back at, at that incident in the Navy history, and you look at what you can learn from it. And it's just a, a really wonderful piece written first person uh, by a guy who was there and, and knew many of the me uh, members of the crew. So talking about McCain and Fitzgerald, and and you know you'd mentioned some of the proceedings today, Kevin Ayers, and uh, what are we hearing? Uh, in terms of like we're, when we're talking about flight school and OBOGs and training tracks, what are we hearing are the sort of first blush changes they might make with surface warfare training? Um, you know, I, I, you know, I was, uh, it was our reunion a few weeks ago and heard from a very credible source um, that uh, they're looking at a flight school model, you know, going back to, a bricks and mortar swas and then some um, where they you know use yps like the training command uses uh you know t45s and and uh really put some rigor and standardization into ship handling ship driving um and uh 
what else are we hearing? You know, are some of the takeaways from from those two mishaps? So, so that's a key part of it. And in proceedings today, we've had a number of uh, really insightful pieces uh, by current and former surface warfare officers and by uh, some people from other communities looking at the surface community and kind of going, I don't understand why they do this or don't do this. Um, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the idea of a sort of a flight school for, for surface officers. Uh, surface warfare officer school closed down sometime in the 2000s. Uh, there was a gap there for a f- few years where all the training for SWOs was essentially OJT. So you, you graduate yeah. from the unit uh, level yeah, OJT. Unit level right? UJT, uh, OJT. So you graduate from the Naval Academy or ROTC or OCS, and you you know you have orders to USS Greyhull. You go to the ship, and and that is where you're. It's not just a PQS, but it's also the training to bring you up to speed. So in the pages of proceedings in the last year, but particularly in the last couple of months, some of the some of the themes that have come out about uh, you know problems in the surface community, you know, include that that lack of a basic flight school, if if you will, for for you know young SWOs. Um, as if you could go to a ship and it's all OJT. So it's sort of undervaluing uh, for quite some tam- time now the basic seamanship and navigational skills, as if that's kind of a given. Well, you're going to be a SWO. You're going to go to your ship. You're going to learn all that stuff. You'll pick it up, OJT, and, uh, you know. You're just uh, driving a ship. You're just driving a ship. Right. Whereas, uh, you know, the the Coast Guard uh, and the Merchant Marines, you know, they have a Coast Guard qualification standard. They have, um, you know, it's a a much more – uh, you know, flight school like, right, or aviator like logbook. You know, and you know the number of hours that you've stood watch and what kinds of uh, watches you've stood. You know, have you done un- unrep? Have you done unrep in bad weather? Have you done unrep at night? Are those things? Swoes do not have a logbook, and so that's one of the ideas. They have that's no way forth. to track right experience. Experience. In, have in, you in actually done those things? And that's what, unbelievable. And on what class of a ship? That's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. So yeah. uh, we had a helicopter pilot who had recently completed a tour on board an amphib as a ship's company. Uh, he got his underway OOD call, uh, so stood watch with the SWOs on the ship. And, and he wrote saying it would be like me showing up in my first H-60 squadron uh, right out of the Naval Academy, you know, without having gone to flight school and, and expected to learn to fly a helicopter OJT. Like that's kind of absurd. Yeah. Um, so well, the other analogies, you know, so we don't beat up the our black shoe friends too bad. Right. Um, so this is where the Swifty program, the Strike Fighter Weapons Training Instructor Program, came from, because until that time, training was at the squadron level, and there was a huge variance from squadron to squadron in terms of how much you knew about a particular mission area. You know, and, and the Tomcat particularly had a whole bunch, especially when we got into the the strike warfare side of it, the, the, the actual bombing. And then when we got landing and we were doing both dumb bombing and smart bombing and other air-to-air capability, it was a lot to get your talent around. And if you had a not varsity training program, then chances are um, you may not be ready if the bubble went up, right? And so Top Gun realized that this was the case and they created the strike fighter weapons training instructor program that took top gun from a flying club a la the movie and made it into 
the N5 directorate at the Naval Strike and Air Warfare Center in Fallon, Nevada. And that rigor affected the entire, you know, strike warfare aviation arm and thereby also everybody involved in, (laughs) excuse me, a battle group or whatever. So this is very much. And so now the capability fleet-wide is standardized. It's better. Um, The unit level would say you took some of it out of our hands in terms of how do we write a flight schedule or how do we do training day to day? They're like, now we're just, you know, uh, doing training towards the Swifty program only. So I don't have any autonomy. I can't do good deal ACM hops or whatever anymore. I, I know OPSOs have complained about that. But at the end, you get a uniform and high bar of capability around missionaries. So to your point, you know, unrep is tough, Right. Unrep in bad weather is even tougher. Night ops, you know, mooring alongside, you know, narrow channel uh, passage. All of these things are something that it's not just sort of loosely, oh, yeah, been there, done that. It's actually measured and quantified. And there's a syllabus which is going to make people better ship drivers and, and, and safer. Um, so that was one part of the problem. Um, there was also the op tempo part, and we've had some discussions about sleep cycles. What 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 was that all about? Yeah. So uh, again, uh, proceedings over the last uh, year or so, a number of uh, articles have been written about uh, about sleep cycles and about sleep deprivation. Um, a, a couple of cultural pieces by contemporary surface warfare officers and retired. You know, I've said, you know, the surface warfare community has uh, for years taken, you know, essentially a badge of honor. How many how many hours straight did you go without sleep? Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm normally, you know, work 21 hours a day. But, uh, you know, sometimes I've gone as much as 48 hours without sleep. And now I remember that as a myth. Right. Right. On, on your ship. You're like, oh, my God, this is a measure of stud factor. I'm like, guess what I'm not going to do. In terms of service selection, right. so <laughs> that really did turn me off. Even before the Fitzgerald and McCain, uh, back in the springtime, we had a, a professional note written by a, a woman who uh, studies human factors, uh, performance factors, and, and she wrote about uh, uh, sleep deprivation and how when you get beyond about uh, 20 hours without sleep, uh, your uh, equivalent of a blood alcohol content, as if you're drunk, of a 0.08 to a 0.1. So we, we don't let sailors drive drunk. You know, we punish them when they do, if they do. Um, do we want people driving our warships, billion dollar warships, as if they have a blood alcohol content of 0.1 or, or you know, 0.08? Uh, no. So uh, we've recently published a couple of pieces on our blog uh, about the, the idea, and, and in proceedings, about the idea of going to a circadian watch uh, cycle. Or uh, so where you're you're not constantly shifting when you sleep, that you sleep in a way that your body can uh, adapt to your watch cycle, uh, where the ship's uh, watch cycle and one MC announcements essentially take into account the need for sleep. That there are times during the day when and, you know unless there's combat or unless there's you know a crisis operation, uh, but for st- standard operations even with training requirements that you that this that the ship's schedule guards some time in the day for watch standers to get four to six hours of uh dedicated sleep so that they get the sleep that they need 
so that they're not standing watch in a uh, a degraded you know mental state or you know state of acuity. So uh, that's another thing. Another another topic that's come out of uh, all these discussions about Fitzgerald and McCain, the surface community, is is maintenance, is the need for maintenance and the backlog for maintenance and how much of the maintenance requirements uh, in, in, uh, in a move to save money over the last 10 or 12 years, uh, you know, and much of this, you can, you can draw the, the root cause all the way up to Capitol Hill, right? Uh, sequestration, uh, you know, the budget cuts, um, you know, that has had a huge impact on maintenance. The, the requirements on the fleet have not gone down, but the maintenance uh, money to pay for spare parts, for sp to pay for availabilities, to pay for shipyard time, uh, that has gone down. Um, and so, you know, you've got ships going out to sea with a lot of CAS reps, um, and, you know, it's rare that a ship is out to sea without, you know, multiple CAS reps. And we've had a number of different pieces in proceedings that have, that have documented that, right? Um, and the submarine community uh, has got, you know, is at a place probably after Thresher as a result of Subsafe and other programs where a CEO can say, I'm not going to take my boat to sea. Uh, because of safety, because I have a maintenance issue, I can't take it to sea, you know. And with a submarine, you, you, one bad CAS rep has probably happened with Thresher, uh, and it's a calamity, right? With a surface ship, you know, they've learned to live with maintenance. You know, I've got a problem with this, you know, starboard shaft, so I can run port shaft. You know, I've got a problem with the number two SSTG, so I can I can go on one. You know, I've got a problem with this side of the radar, but so they've learned to live with. Uh, with systems degraded, and and that's you know, good on them, right? I mean, you know, you gotta you well, gotta but, give, uh, you gotta give them points to a certain to a certain extent, but then to a you know you get to a certain point where you've got to be able to say no, this is a safety issue. This well, is so a the CNO on, when he was testifying said, you know, we have too much of a can-do attitude, right? Um, and so this reminds me of the article that that you ran about. Um, off the coast of Yemen, you know, because it does have tactical ramifications, readiness, right? I mean, this is uh, so that's like the tale of two ships. Tell tell us about about that one, if the audience missed that. And I, I very much recommend that you circle back and read this article because it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So and it, we actually published two pieces on it last week. So uh, about a year ago, October 2016, off the coast of Yemen, uh, Iranian backed and Iranian armed Houthi rebels uh, over a period of a couple days, uh, fired coastal defense cruise missiles, uh, CO2 silkworms, uh, at a group of uh, Navy ships. Uh, first, a uh, the USS or the high-speed vessel Swift, which is U.S. owned but was being uh, rented or leased to the Emiratis at the time, and the Swift was hit uh, by a missile. Uh, it survived, uh, limped into port, uh, and in reaction to that, uh, USS Mason, NHTSA. The Ponce, and I think there was one other, uh, responded to the scene in the Red Sea off the coast of Yemen. Um, and yeah, what kind of ships are those? So Nitza and uh, and Mason uh, are DDGs, so Arleigh Burke DDGs. Uh, Ponce is in a float forward sta staging base, uh, and I forget the name of another ship that was in and out of the group. But the two that the the real story is about the two DDGs, so Mason and Nitza. Uh, so. On one day, uh, there were two coastal defense cruise missiles fired at the group of ships. Uh, the great news story is uh, first time ever in a combat situation with no warning, not training, not a training round. Uh, USS Mason detected 
the CO2s fired uh, standard missile and uh, missiles and fired uh, ESSM uh, um, and and shot down and successfully engaged and splashed the uh, cruise missiles. The piece of concern is that the NHTSA, also there, also a DDG, uh, for reasons that um, have not completely come out uh, publicly yet, uh, did not detect the missiles. Uh, so NHTSA's role was uh, to take part in the, uh, in the Tomahawk launches a few days later uh, that struck the Houthi positions and essentially uh, punished and, and took out that capability that the Houthis had. Uh, but the surface community had to, you know, go back and look at, okay, one of our DDGs performed as advertised, the other did not, uh, and, and why. And so we have a, a piece that we uh, published in uh, Proceedings Today a week ago by Kevin Iyer, uh, who raised the the concern, right? You know, so you have questions about more than just seamanship. I think is the the the, the name of the article, um, where he uh, lays out the events that led to this, and then, you know, what is the Navy going to do about the fact that you had a DDG that, you know, performed great, and another one right next to it that did not perform well. Um, and and if well, and if the one hadn't been there, the one hadn't been the there, other one may well, be at the bottom of the yeah. North Arabian Sea or the Gulf of Aden, right? And, right. And so we also had a few days prior to that, we had a piece written, and this gets to your comment about the WTI program. The surface community has initiated also the the uh, uh, the weapons and tactics instructor program. Uh, so Admiral John Wade, uh, class of 1990 from the Naval Academy, is now the commanding officer, first commanding officer of the uh, Naval Surface and Mine Warfare uh, Center at San Diego. Um, and their job is to look at tactical events like this, uh, to, uh, it's not to investigate for you know, wrongdoing or uh, uh, anything like that, but to look at and find the lessons learned. You know, what were the configuration settings of the spy? What were the atmospherics? What, um, you know, what did one ship have that the other didn't have? Did, you know, what were the software changes or, or variabilities in the, in the software of the systems? What kinds of things might have, you know, settings that the radar operators or that the CO ordered or didn't order? You know, all of those things. You know, what can we learn from both Mason and NHTSA and make sure that the WTIs out there in the surface fleet can get those messages and those lessons out to the entire DDG community or CG community, the, the Desrons, so that they know uh, when you're in this kind of a situation, this is how to configure your spy because, you know, these kinds of atmospherics uh, or this kind of humidity in the air or this kind of coastline geography or, you know, who knows what the variables were uh, that led to one versus the other. Uh, but, but that's another piece that has been in proceedings uh, just in the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, a, a fascinating story. But boy, we've got to learn something from that uh, from that situation. And it sounds like you know we've got now the surface community's got that WTI community modeled after the the aviation Top Gun uh, model. Uh, the 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 center there in San Diego is essentially the Top Gun for the uh, surface community for the the Crudez community, uh, and they're trying to instigate what the CNO has called high velocity learning. You know, at a time when when very necessary. Yeah, great, great stuff. And again, that's the uh, the reason for the forum, you know, as Admiral Warden intended back in 1873. Let's talk about one more article from the forthcoming issue, uh, the the submarine community issue. So, just the 
readers will see that there's a, a couple good ones about Russia, one by our good friend Norman Pomar, um, and another one that focuses particularly on China, and it's got a cool title of Sons and Dragons. It sounds like a Hemingway novel. Um, yeah, so this is a great one by a J.O., so uh, Lieutenant J- Junior Grade, Dan Stefanis, uh, who's a SWO down in Norfolk, uh, Fibron 8. Uh, he won the General Prize Essay Contest for 2016. Uh, he's a great writer, uh, very insightful. Uh, but and he this, won $5,000? For that, and he yep. won $1,500 for this. His, uh, this was his entry in the 2017 inaugural CNO Naval History Essay Contest. This is the third prize winner. So just... You can see that these essay contests that the Naval Institute sponsors uh, do award real money, um, and they also yield fantastic content. It's not about the money, but they do award money. They, they do, and uh, yeah. So it, it, you know, if you're giving away a, a couple of nights and weekends, uh, some of your your limited spare time, free time out there in the fleet, uh, you, you know, you you have the opportunity to earn that back a little bit, and uh, you know, have a little beer money uh, to celebrate after uh, after a, an essay contest. But this one, uh, Dan Stefanos is looking at. Uh, essentially 100 years ago, uh, about 100 years ago, after World War I, uh, in the Pacific, the environment, the strategic environment, you had a rising Japan. Uh, you had at the time a, uh, a rising and powerful you know, United States. Uh, the war, the, the Spanish-American War was over. The Philippines were essentially American protectorate or territory. Uh, the, you know, there was a, a, a race for resources among these two rising uh, uh, nations. Uh, and over time, their interests diverged, right? So uh, by the 1920s, both the United States and Japan enjoyed great prosperity, but uh, their interests diverged and maritime competition escalated. And he's looking at today and saying, hey, we've got a similar situation uh, with China. Uh, we've got diverging interests. We've got a maritime uh, competition that is escalating. What did we learn from how we managed or didn't manage well in the 1920s and 30s that um, uh, that relationship with Japan that we could apply to uh, you know the relationship with China? So it it ranges from uh, geopolitical, diplomatic uh, things that we should be doing with our alliances in the Pacific. Uh, but it also talks about the need for the Navy right now to experiment, to uh, advance its technology, to uh, to try to retake uh, or or advance our lead over the Ch- the Chinese military in their um, uh, military capabilities. So it's it's a great piece, very very insightful by a junior officer. Uh, you know, it's nice to see a JG active duty out there writing writing often, and winning prizes. Well, I mean, that's what it's all about. That is absolutely the forum. So uh, members, um, you know, look look forward to that issue. One more thing we want to talk about from the issue, which is the uh, the, Nor- the Norman Polmar piece we were talking about. What's that one all about? Yeah, so one more teaser. Uh, so Russia, this is an uh, article by Norman Polmar and Ed Whitman, uh, both experts in the submarine world. Both have written uh, books and articles uh, uh, about submarines. Uh, and Norman is a is a historian of epic proportions about epic. submarines. <laughs> Norman's the epic. man. He is the we man. We love him. Uh, has written about the Soviet submarine fleet, the Russian submarine fleet, has been to Russia a number of times. Uh, but their piece is called Russia Poses a Non-Acoustic Threat to U.S. Submarines. Uh, and it's a it's a very very interesting piece about 
how during the Cold War and, and even to today, the United States in our submarine and our anti-submarine warfare fo focus, m we've put a lot of, uh, of money and effort and, and time and technology into acoustics and passive acoustics, uh, especially as the, the main detection mechanism uh, for submarines. Um, but the Soviets, uh, and, and you know, to some extent now the Russians, a little harder to follow in the last 10 years, but Norman and Ed go back and they look at the immense effort that the Soviet uh, S&T community put into to finding ways to detect submarines non-acoustically. Uh, everything from salinity to radiometrics to bathymetry to wake to bioluminescence to lasers to satellites. Uh, there were a lot of, uh, you know, Russian uh, S&T, and the Russians are very, very good in uh, science and technology in this uh, area. Lots of uh, academic institutes that were very devoted to uh, finding ways to, to uh, find and track submarines non-acoustically. And so they trace that history of Russian development, Soviet development, uh, and S&T, and then fielding some of these sensors, starting with submarines like the Victor 1, Victor 2, Victor 3, uh, pictures of an Akula with some of these non-acoustic sensors on the sail. Uh, and then we, we have a great picture of the Severed Vince, the newest um, uh, and most advanced Russian SSN. And we pose the question, you know, just what what's the state of the art in the Russian submarine fleet or the Russian ASW fleet now in terms of non-acoustic detection and what kind of threat could that have to uh, to the U.S. fleet? So it's a it's a it's a wonderful piece, uh, very interesting. A lot of the research that they have done in uh, Russian and Soviet literature was stuff that was classified in the Soviet system 30, 40 years ago and has now come out from behind classification. Uh, and so you can read what the Russians were writing about or Soviets were writing about in a, in a classified environment, you know, in the 1960s and 70s and 80s. So it's good to be back on the air, Bill. Um, again, uh, we missed Dave and uh, we kind of circled back and we were like, hey, you know, we, we got to make this happen because I've had a lot of people say, hey, I like the podcast. When's it, you know, so forth and so on. So uh, we'll try to do this uh, every week. Uh, that uh, covering both the events of the day, we'll try to have Sam Legrone in here when he's available. Right now, he's heads down on some news issues. Uh, you know, the editor of USI News will have call-in guests, newsmakers, and experts like Admiral Stavridis and others like that. Maybe a couple of our authors. Authors. We'll have our authors to give you the story behind the story. So uh, uh, tune in here. And, and thanks for folks uh, watching us on Facebook Live. Hello from Texas. Uh, and... Uh, if you're not a member of the Naval Institute, go up usni.org and, and, and join. Uh, get your own issue of Proceedings Magazine. And right now that sub-issue is on its way to you. So we'll look forward to seeing you guys here again next week. Uh, and until then, uh, victory starts at the Naval Institute. Thanks. <laughs>